Hi, I'm taking a break over the next few weeks. Meanwhile, here's an episode you might have missed. So you'll know, I have some fantastic guests lined up in 2023, many that you've requested. Season's greetings and happy 2023 to all of y'all. Thank you for the messages, emails, support, and the reviews. You make the magic happen for all things Tudor. Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, and welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and today my very special guest is Professor Susanna Lipscomb, who is one of the foremost Tudor experts in the world. And I have to be honest, her bio is two pages long, so it would take me 15 minutes to read it. But I think we all know she is a world-renowned historian. She is a broadcaster. She is a columnist. She is many things. She is now a podcaster. But we want to talk today about the Tudors. So welcome, Susanna, to All Things Tudor. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about the Tudors. I would love to get your take on Henry and Anne Boleyn and how January played such an important part in their history. Well, yes. There's so much to say about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Where do we start? So January is a very important month for them. That's absolutely right. And I suppose the first thing that comes to mind for most people thinking about Henry and Anne and January is actually something at the sort of end of their relationship. Because, of course, what happened with Henry and Anne is that, as we all know, Anne was executed in May 1536. But that came four months after January 1536, when she had miscarried at three and a half months. And it was clear that the child was a boy. So, We know that she miscarried as a result, at least that's what she said. She claimed that it was as a result of Henry's jousting accident on the 24th of January. Let's come back to all of that, though. Let's go back a bit earlier in their relationship when things were looking good. So Henry and Anne, as everyone listening to this will know, fell in love some point in the late 1520s. And... Obviously, it was impossible to get an annulment for Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon, even though asking for it was a fairly standard procedure. But because of the political situation in Europe at the time, the Pope wasn't in a position to grant that without upsetting the most powerful man in Europe, who was Charles V, Catherine of Aragon's nephew. So instead, Henry had to look for an alternative route, and he got his men, including Thomas Cranmer, great scholars, to try and find a way out of his marriage to Catherine. And, you know, that came through looking at scriptural texts and all that sort of thing. And the consequence of that was a series of acts of parliament. The first crucial one happens in 1531. And 
it is called very boringly a sort of act in restraint of appeals, but actually it stopped Catherine appealing to Rome against any jurisdiction made by Henry. So the first January event that we have that's of importance in the Anne and Henry story is in the 5th of January, or January 5th, as you say in America, 1531, when the Pope Clement VII wrote to forbid Henry from remarrying and to threaten him with excommunication. So January played a very important role in their relationship pretty much from the first, as we can tell. In fact, the month of January had actually been important to them even earlier than 1536. Most people listening to this will know that Anne and Henry had fallen in love in late 1526 or something like that, the late 1520s anyway. And from March 1527, we know that they were looking for a divorce. But it wasn't possible to get that divorce in the conventional way from Catherine, which was to get the annulment by the Pope because of the political situation in Europe at the time, which meant that the Pope, Clement VII, was being held prisoner by the most powerful man in Europe at the time, which was Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, and also Catherine's nephew. So something quite conventional, a king asking for an annulment had not worked out. And so it takes a while to work through. There's a trial in 1529, Catherine defies its authority, and the Pope revokes the case to Rome. But crucially, in 15. 31, one of the first acts of Parliament is passed in order to permit Henry to go down another route in order to separate from Catherine. And it is an act that sounds very dull. It says that it's a charge of primo munere, which is allegiance to a foreign power, against the clergy of England. So it's an alarming thing because what it says is that you cannot be loyal to the Pope. And it is laying the grounds for another act that will be passed in 1533, which is called, boringly, the Act in Restraint of Appeals. But it's a crucial act because it means that Catherine cannot appeal to Rome. And so these Acts of Parliament are paving the way for an annulment to be decided in England that Catherine cannot appeal to Rome to get it overturned and the clergy cannot demonstrate their loyalty to the Pope over the crown without consequence. So those are important things that are happening that some of them are sort of setting themselves going in January 1531, the charge of primary and they culminate in the Act of Supremacy of 1534, which declares that Henry is supreme head of the Church of England and always has been. But meanwhile, something else important has happened in January for Henry and Anne, which is that they have got married. So in January 1533, Henry and Anne married privately with a very small audience and this is before Henry has had his marriage to Catherine annulled, which happened in May 1533. So, so he was certainly a bigamist. But actually, Dermot McCulloch suggests that there was a previous 
marriage between Henry and Anne, and that this had happened back in October or November 1532. And the logic for this is that we know, of course, that Elizabeth was born in September 1533. So we can judge that Henry and Anne must have been sexually active towards the end of 1532. And one has to ask the question, why after seven years of waiting, they decided at that moment to become sexually involved? I mean, they were sexually involved with each other, but to become involved in the sort of sex that could be procreative at that time. And the logic is that they have reached some sort of agreement between themselves. And under the understanding of the medieval Catholic Church, it was possible to marry in a sort of clandestine marriage, but that was still sort of legally significant, if one exchanged promises to marry in words of the present tense. So promises to marry in words of the future tense, I will marry you, was an engagement. I marry you was a marriage if it was followed with a consummation. And so, although the medieval church didn't like it, they didn't like that there wasn't a priest there or wasn't there weren't witnesses, everyone sort of grumblingly accepted that that was indeed a legal marriage. And I think that's what happened to them in late 1532. But it was in January 1533 that they had another marriage ceremony where they married before witnesses. So it's giving it another seal of authority, even though it's being done well before Henry's annulment of his marriage to Catherine. That's really remarkable in history. Don't you think that the king would marry before witnesses, before having anything from Rome? Don't you think that was a real sign of rebellion? Or how do you interpret that? Well, it's actually even worse than that because of the act that had been passed proclaiming the clergy of England as treasonous. Back in 1531, Clement VII had actually warned Henry not to remarry and had threatened him with excommunication. So Henry is faced with something that in 16th century terms is worse than a death sentence, he's faced with the prospect of everlasting damnation, according to the Pope. So we have to imagine that from that to her arrive in 1531, and two years later, Henry to marry Anne before witnesses, suggests that in those two years, something has happened in Henry's thinking to permit him to put aside the authority of the Pope. And this is the man Henry VIII, who had written his Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, his assertion or defence of the seven sacraments, it's against Martin Luther, contra Martin Luther, back in 1521, and who had really clearly held up the authority of the Pope. But this whole business of wanting to marry Anne and wanting to be separated from Catherine has made him completely reevaluate where he thinks spiritual authority lies. So by 1533, although the act of supremacy only happens a year later, Henry officially becomes supreme head of the church a year later. Clearly, by January 1533, Henry has in his mind that authority in the church does not lie with the Pope and does lie with him. That's so profound to me because it's as if Henry decides, like, 
as she said, he is the head of the church in England, that he can marry whomever he chooses. And we have to wonder if there was also that driving desire for a son that early. So that that really speaks to me, everything you just said. So thank you for putting it in such easy terms to understand. You're most welcome. And I think there absolutely is a desire for a son. I mean, I think that that is a key part of it. We can't imagine that this is just about love and desire, though it is about that. It's also about a sense of duty, that he has a duty to provide an heir, if not more than one, to carry on the dynasty. And I'd say it's about something else as well. I think it's also about Henry really convincing himself that it had been wrong for him to marry Catherine of Aragon because she was his brother's widow, and that is why they had been childless. He had to find some sort of reason for the fact that their children had died at birth, apart from Mary, and there had to be something wrong with it. And I think that's so interesting because I think so much of the time, I mean, and people always say these days still say things like everything happens for a reason. And I think that all things can be worked to good, but I think that bad things happen too. (laughs) And I think that for Catherine and Henry, some really terrible things had happened. You know, to lose five children... Because we often hear about them as being miscarriages, but they're not miscarriages. They're stillbirths. They're children who... She's gone through the whole pregnancy and given birth to a child that is not alive. Or it's a child who dies soon after birth. Or in one case, Prince Henry, it's a boy who dies seven weeks old. Just the the horror of it. I remember when I had a seven-week-old thinking about it a lot. And anyway, so I think that Henry has decided that there had to be an explanation And so he's convinced himself that there must be some sort of divine punishment. So if he can set it right, then he will have the son that he wants. This is an off-the-wall question, but I read this week somewhere that Anne introduced Henry to the divine right of kings. Is that correct? It's not quite correct, but I know what the person was suggesting by it. So what Anne did was introduced Henry to a book by William Tyndale called The Obedience of a Christian Man. And in it was the idea that it was shameful for kings to be under the authority of popes and that it inverted the divine order. And Henry is said to have said, though I haven't yet found a source for this, but he's said to have said, this is the book for me and all kings to read. So... I think that's the idea present there. Henry, of course, already knew about the divine right of kings. I mean, it's written in the motto of English kings since 1413, Dieu est mon droit, God of my right. In 1515, Henry had stood up at Baynard's Castle in London and said, we are king of England and kings of England in times past have never had any superior but God alone. I mean, there was very much a sense of divine right. But this sense that divine right trumped papal authority is an idea that I think Anne is instrumental in introducing to Henry. Okay, thank you for that. They didn't mention Tyndale, but I see how it all fits in together now. So thank you. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. 
You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. Let's skip ahead to the jousting accident. And the January of 1536, so much happened there that was so political and just really important in the history of Anne. So I'd love your take on it. Yeah, well, I've thought a lot about this. My first book, a long time ago now, (laughs) 11, 12 years ago, something like that, I wrote a book about 1536, the year that changed Henry VIII. And it seems to me that this year of 1536 contained all the sort of necessary ingredients to catalyse and entrench that change in Henry. And I think the jousting accident is key to it. So the background to this is that Henry had previously had a jousting accident in 1524, jousting against Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, but had healed from that and... The accident in 1536 seems likely to have been whilst he was practising as opposed to actually involved in the joust because we have no record of the person he was jousting against. Still, he would have been on a large horse, he would have been armoured, and he fell from his horse whilst jousting. The report by Eustace Chapuy, the imperial ambassador, the ambassador from the Holy Roman Empire, said that everyone thought it was a miracle he wasn't killed and he was unconscious for two hours, which is a very long time to be unconscious. And as a result of the accident, he opened up an ulcer in his leg. It previously opened in 1527-28. A man called Thomas Vickery had been instrumental in healing it. But after this, it never healed. And incidentally, that's one reason why we know that Henry didn't have syphilis. But a lot of people have suggested that this was was one of the reasons we know. People have suggested he had syphilis and people have said, oh, maybe this was a syphilitic ulcer. But syphilitic ulcers heal. I say this without any great confidence because I'm not a medical doctor, but this is what I'm told. So this ulcer didn't heal. It weeped. It had pus coming from it. It was, you know, running open sore. And you can imagine the sort of infection dangers of sepsis and all of that. And there are times when it obviously gave him a lot of pain. And there are times when people thought that he was going to die. In 1540, he went black in the face. And I think it's, if we think about DVT, the sort of dangers of flying, the the blood clots, clearly that's what's going on. And in the end, Henry dies from a pulmonary embolism. It gets him in the end. So this also, I mean, this jousting accident of 1536 effectively spells Henry's death just a decade earlier. And it had happened few weeks after Catherine of Aragon had died, finally, herself probably dying of cancer of the stomach. And she, you know, it had been a terribly sad story of Catherine who hadn't seen Henry for five years and wrote to him in the end, my eyes desire to see you above all things. And then Henry goes for this jousting, has this accident, and as a result of the jousting accident, Anne Boleyn says that it was her shock of hearing the news of the king's fall that caused her to miscarry. So it's a deeply significant accident, even before we start to think about theories of whether Henry 
bruised his cerebral cortex, if he did damage to that part of the brain that is forming in adolescence that allows one to empathise with other people, to be able to control one's emotions, to sort of suppress the more animal urges. If that part of his brain was damaged, that might explain much of the behaviour of the following decade. But even without that, which can only be sort of supposition at this stage, we don't have the medical records to substantiate it. But even without that, we've got the emotional impact of this. He never adjusts again. This is the beginning of his obesity. His waist measurement goes from 37 inches in 1536 to 54 inches five years later. It's just a huge increase. And it's the year he turns 45. And in the 16th century, this is thought to be the onset of old age. And it just is a completely paradigm-shifting moment in terms of how Henry sees himself and indeed how the world sees him. He's always been this gorgeous, handsome, tall, athletic prince who looks like, you know, your perfect Renaissance king. He stops being that at this stage and I think that there's a sense in which, psychologically for him, this is a very important moment. And then with Anne having the miscarriage a short time after that, do you believe this played into the new psyche of Henry? I'm sure that the miscarriage was devastating. I don't know if it was the only miscarriage they had. There's some suggestion that Anne miscarried in 1534. Some historians even argue that she did so in 1535. The only one that's absolutely recorded factually is the 1536 one. And she miscarried what they thought they could identify to be a, a male at 15 and a half weeks. So that must have been devastating. And there must have been this terrible fear that history was repeating itself, although these were miscarriages and not stillbirths. But Henry had two daughters and felt like he needed a son. And most people at the time would have agreed with him. It wasn't a sort of niche position to think that he needed a son as opposed to a daughter. So... The question is really whether Anne had, as the line goes, miscarried of her saviour. I'm sure if she had stayed pregnant, she wouldn't have died in May. But I'm not sure that the dice had been thrown by that miscarriage. I think things later played into her death, but that maybe is another story. <laughs> Something to talk about at a future date then. I'd love to talk about that as a future date. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a great conversation. And Back to January, Henry even passed away in January, correct? Absolutely. The crucial thing we haven't mentioned that happened and that affected Henry VIII in January, of course, as you say, he died on the 28th of January, 1547. And I always think this is interesting because his father had been born on the 28th of January, 1457. So there's a kind of interplay of the numbers there, which is quite fun. And... And actually, January, of course, would be the date of Elizabeth's coronation many years later, his daughter. So he dies on the 28th of January, 1547. His son, finally his son, Edward, who was born, of course, to Jane Seymour, became king. And then, of course, as we know, he dies young. Mary takes the throne, reigns for five years. She dies. And then Elizabeth the child who is produced as a result of the union with Anne finally becomes queen. So there's something about January being very important in Henry's life, in the life of the dynasty, and in his relationship with Anne Boleyn. 
That seems to be so true, and thanks for talking about it. I would like to take a minute to talk about your books. You're extremely prolific, and I'd like to hear more about those, please. Oh, bless you. Okay, so I've written, as I said, the book about 1536, about the year that changed Henry VIII, and that looks at some other events, looks at the fall of Anne Boleyn, of course, and the great rebellion against Henry in late 1536. I wrote a little book called A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England. It has another name in America. So I'm going to have to look up its name in America, <laughs> how one forgets these things. I forget the names of my books. I mean, that's, you know, terrible, isn't it? So, I mean, it's one thing of forgetting what's in them, but to actually forget their names is something else. This book, which was a sort of look at all the places one can go to in England, 50 places, not all the places, 50 places one can go to in England that can sort of look, recreate the story of the Tudors. So it get, takes you to the remains of Nonsuch Palace or to the gorgeous Little Morton Hall in Cheshire or to Hampton Court. So all over the place to think about these destinations that unfold chapters of Tudor history. I've remembered it's called A Journey Through Tudor England in, in the States. And it's an introduction to Tudor England. <laughs> and it's also a kind of intended to be a a history of the period. So each place that you can go and visit also tells you a crucial part of Tudor history. I also wrote a tiny little book called Witchcraft, which is the Ladybird Expert Guide to the Witch Trials. I'm trying to explain in 6,000 words why the witch trials of the 16th and 17th century happened, why so many people, most of them women, were persecuted, prosecuted and executed as witches. And I have written a book called The King is Dead, The Last Will and Testament of Henry VIII, which explores Henry's last will. And the question about whether it has been a conspiracy, whether it was an attempt to try and change his will, what happened basically in the last year of Henry's life. And so it's a kind of forensic examination of that last year and what we find out from the last will. And I also have written a book called The Voices of Neem, Women, Sex and Marriage in Reformation Languedoc, which is a look at the women of... 16th century France, but ordinary women and trying to recover their voices and bring their stories to life and which they appear before something called a consistory, which is sort of church court of the Protestant church in the south of France. And so because they appear here and because their te testimonies were written down, we get this amazing kind of insight into women's lives. And then there are a couple of edited books that I'll just tell you about the most recent one, which is called What is History Now? which just come out. And I'm going to brandish a copy at you, Deb, so you can see it. Subtitles is How the Past and Present Speak to Each Other, and it's a series of 19 essays by all sorts of amazing scholars like Simon Sharma and Peter Frankopan and Sarah Churchwell, Bethany Hughes, Maya Jasanoff, and lots of others who have written about what their field of history is now. And I edited it with Helen Carr and it's because 60 years ago there was a book that came out called What is History by E.H. Carr that argued that history means interpretation and it's been so influential on the discipline that we wanted to do a kind of updated version to mark the 60th anniversary where we thought about what does that mean now, right? So how do you now write the history of empire? My chapter is how can we recover the lost voices of women in the past? There are chapters on thinking about people with disabilities in history or can and should we queer the past or what do we 
know about it, the history of indigenous peoples, etc., etc. So it, it approaches history from all sorts of ways. Even why should history be at the movies? Um, that's brilliant. And isn't the original car Helen's grandfather the one that wrote the first book? It is. E.H. Carr was Helen's great-grandfather. So she great felt grandfather. this kind of family legacy that she needed to, yes, that's right, that she needed to kind of honour this in some way. It's such a remarkable lineup of people and then the tie to the past there and that now the stories are being told by women as well as men. It's really a groundbreaking book, so congratulations to all of you. And I also want to congratulate you on your podcast. Yes, thank you. I've been really pleased with it. I understand you've had something like a million and a half downloads, listens in less than six months. It's just a phenomenon. And we love it in all things Tudor. It's one of our favorites. Thank you. Yeah, it's we've just, I guess we're coming up for nine months and we've like 2.2 million downloads now. It's just amazing. It turns out that there's a really big interest in the 16th and 17th centuries. It's extraordinary. And the name is great because you can take us to other places besides Tudor England. And if you want to elaborate on that, I'm more than happy to hear more. Well, yes, it's a playful title, not just the Tudors. Obviously, I love the Tudors and I want to talk about them all the time. But I also wanted to talk about France and Germany and Iceland and Mexico and India and Japan or whatever during the 16th and 17th centuries. So there's all these amazing stories. And I speak to people about things like, you know, the painter Velasquez or the Aztecs or Tokugawa Japan or uh, the story of an early modern teenage werewolf in the Basque country in, in the south of France, as well as talking to people about Catherine Howard and Anne Boleyn and Catherine of Aragon's formation and all sorts of things. So it gives an opportunity to dig into stories both about the royals and also about ordinary people over this kind of broad 200-year period that I find so fascinating. It is fascinating, and so is your podcast. So thanks for that. Quick question, where can we find you on social media? I am on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. And my handle is at 16th century girl or 16th C girl. So 16th written out like the word and C for century and then girl, which is becoming a hostage to fortune as I get older. But I'm going to keep run, running with it, I think. Well, that's great to know. And are are you working on anything now you can tell us about? Yes, I am. For my sins, dauntingly, I am writing a new history of the women who were married to Henry VIII. So this collective biography, I'm trying to do something that really draws on the manuscript sources and goes back to them, particularly to non-Anglophone sources as well. There's been a lot of reliance on sources in English, but actually there's much that we need to look at. This is Spanish and French, German. And because I feel that, although there's been huge numbers of brilliant books and articles in the last 20 years on the wives or queens individually, they're not just wives, I think that the collective biographies that exist, perhaps with the exception of Antonia Fraser's, don't make very comfortable reading these days because of many of the 
ways in which they think about women. And I don't think that's very helpful. And I think that there are ways of examining the past that can throw off this sort of accumulated misogyny of centuries and give us a fresher take. So that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I look very forward to that and want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating talking to you and you are more than welcome to join us again on All Things Tudor. Thank you for having me, Deb, and I wish you all the very best. Well, thank you. Have a great day. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.